0: is Holly lewis
1: i'm lawson keeney and i am jean lewis and welcome
0: to the long watch the internet premier pro the avengers pro john let's go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse this week we have continued our deep dive into the mcu this time we're in phase two but we're going to be talking about guardians of the galaxy directed by james gunn exploring the more sci-fi spacey elements of the mcu But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson. Tell us more about your experience in Phase
1: 2. Well, actually, we're not going to start with Phase 2. There is one movie I saw in the cinemas, but it is tangentially related to Marvel because it is the Russo brothers' new movie. It is The Grey Man, which received a small theatrical release ahead of its release on Netflix, which is, of course, I saw it in the theatres. Not many other people did. It was me and an old lady, and that was it. Does she
0: seem to like
1: it? Yeah, she seemed fine. She was there for an MA-rated Ryan Gosling action movie. It is an action thriller. It's based on the book of the same name by Mark Greeny, and it follows a Black Ops assassin named Sierra Six. He's played by Ryan Gosling, Pin he discovers that a target that he is sent to kill is actually another Sierra operative, Sierra Four, and this colleague reveals to him as he lies dying that uh, there's actually this, this higher-up, Denny Carmichael, played by... Rajajin Page, who is dirty, is corrupt, and he has evidence against him, and that's basically why this hit has been called. So Ryan Gosling gets this USB and goes on the run, this USB with all this information, and Carmichael hires a lunatic outside contractor, Lloyd Hanson, played by Chris Evans, to track Sierra Six down. This is dead simple, but it works. I mean, there's not an original thought in its head, but it's, it's sort of born... With style, The plot is very familiar. There's that dash of personality through it, though. It it brings a bit of MCU swagger to the proceedings. It's not as austere as Bourne or Bond or or anything like that. There's a, a pretty decent undercurrent or subplot or character arc, whatever you want to call it, between Sierra and his connection to his mentor, Billy Bob Thornton, who is now retired but sort of dragged back in because they want him to help them Track down Sierra Six and to do that they've kidnapped his niece but that's well handled it's it gives Sierra Six like additional sort of personal stakes in things it complicates things well enough and Thornton is excellent he gets that sort of very grizzled old CIA operative kind of dramatic dialogue and he handles that very well but Overall, there's not much character development here. Evans is fun, but he's playing the one note over and over and over. It's hard to take the character seriously because they build him up as such an awesome badass, but... Every time you actually see him in action, he is like failing spectacularly in like the most pyrotechnics way possible, like blinking signs, failed CIA ops mission here in all of these public spaces. And you're like, well, actually, this guy's kind of an idiot. And it's really difficult to take Evans seriously when he's got the dodgy porn mustache that he's got in this movie. The action is fantastic. The Russo brothers have always been good at action. They continue to be here. That stuff's well staged and it's very thrilling to watch it's very exciting it keeps the pulse up but i do like it's been very successful for netflix they're already talking about a sequel and a spin-off and i do think that there's definitely room for expansion here i just think that they need to they need to do something a little more off formula whatever they do next it's solid meat and potatoes with a lot of seasoning You know, But it's available for streaming now on Netflix, if anyone's interested. And of course, then there was, aside from Guardians of the Galaxy, the other five movies in Phase 2. We start off with... And let me just say at the top here, would I be correct in assuming that this phase is also your guys' least favourite, as it is mine?
2: Well,
0: it's very much middle ground, you know?
2: Yeah, it's doing a lot of setup for... The future.
1: It's populated by most of the MCU's weakest movies.
2: Maybe
0: not weakest in terms of their overall qualities and visuals, but they're the most boring.
1: Mm. I think the top two worst MCU movies are in this phase, which, considering there's only six movies in them, the only two to only two installments in this that I would deem outright satisfying are Captain America: Winter Soldier and Guardians. Yeah, that's fair. But we'll start off with Iron Man 3, which is, at the moment at least, I'm still finalising my list for next week my second least favorite MCU movie. It's, of course, a superhero movie directed by Shane Black. It's based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Hecking, Jack Kirby. And in it, it's Tony Stark, played again by Robert Downey Jr., is reeling after the events of the Avengers. He has PTSD uh, and he's trying to, like, deal with everything that's happened to him. But at the same time, he's having to contend with a terrorist calling himself the Mandarin. He's played by Ben Kingsley. He's bombing a whole bunch of places and he seems connected in some way to a shady scientist named Aldrich Killian, played by Guy Pearce. This is just a gigantic step down from every movie that they've been doing up until this point, in my opinion. It's shallow. There's plenty of ideas, but there's no depth to any of them. There's good character potential. I mean, I like the idea of Tony Stark having PTSD, of him having these anxiety attacks, but it's so poorly handled, and then it's forgotten. Like... I'm sure all three of us wish that panic attacks could be cured as easily as they get cured in this movie. The Mandarin thing doesn't bother me as much this time, knowing that it's coming. Yeah. And I do understand the rock and a hard place that they were in with the character of the Mandarin, considering his fairly racist origins and the his presentation in the comics. And I think ultimately they've handled it well in the postscript to this movie with getting to Shang-Chi and all of that, but it doesn't keep the core bad guy plot from being pretty dull. It wastes all of the new characters it introduces. Killian's just a big nothing, and Rebecca Hall is fantastic, but barely in it. You get some fun stuff with this sort of episode where Tony Stark gets... The suit breaks down in the middle of a, a small town and he hangs out with this kid named Harley, played by Ty Sheridan. And that's a lot of fun, mainly because Tony Stark does not ever try to soften his personality mm-hmm. around this kid. Like, there's this whole thing where the kid's, like, talking about how his his dad left and didn't come back. And, you know, any other movie, you'd have that bit where the, the adult, like, was like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And it's this moment of, like, paternal connection or whatever. But instead, Tony Stark's just like, yeah, well, dad's leave. You don't have to be a pussy about
0: it. <laughs> yeah. I like the Iron Patriot stuff.
1: Yeah, that's all good. And you get a, a good William Sadler as President William Sadler. Yeah. <laughs> there are some decent set pieces. It's more violent than any of the previous oh, films. It's nastier. You can definitely see the Shane Black influence on that. Oh
2: Yeah, and even with the comedy as well, you've got people sort of lampshading the ridiculousness of situations. You've got all of the stuff with Tony Stark basically being without the suit and having to be a hero without it. And... That's all very interesting. There's
1: some stuff here that works. I mean, I really don't like the finale, that whole fight there. It just turns into, like, a CGI duck shoot, basically, at a certain point. And there's not much interesting there. And they rush through that finale so fast. It's just like, end narration that resolves all of the hanging yeah. threads. They, like, it's, it's kind of absurd, but...
0: And it gives you the impression that he's done being Iron Man?
1: Well, they hadn't signed him to their next contract yet, so... For all they knew, he might have been. That was the thing going through all of these, all this research for the production history. The many times where they appeared to be teeing up a exit for Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> if they needed it, but yeah, it's all very competent, but it's just without care. I I almost found myself wondering if they just felt a real need to rush this movie out in the immediate aftermath of the Avengers rather than actually take the time. I mean, frankly, I mean, they, they might have just been better off skipping Iron Man 3 and Thor 2 and just having Captain America one year and Guardians the next. It's available for streaming on Disney+, Plus if anyone's interested. Of course, we move on to Thor 2. Thor The Dark World, directed by Alan Taylor. It's based on the character created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Larry Lieber. And in it, Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth, has brought his brother Loki, played by Tom Hiddleston, back to Asgard to be imprisoned. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, is still searching for a way to find Thor. And in doing that, she finds the Aether, which we will later learn is an Infinity Stone. But that basically infects her with darkness, but it's darkness that the dark elves want yeah. to get a hold of, to turn off all light in the universe, basically, to uh, just make dicks. the universe dark. Yes, they're led by Malekith, played by Christopher Eccleston, and waste. 2013 was a down year, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone can really argue that 2013 and 2015 were the two worst years of the MCU Mm. this is not nearly as disappointing as I remembered it being maybe just because I had so much negative expectation built up over the decades since I've seen it in my head but Iron Man 3 far surpasses it in disappointment watching it through this time. It leans into the mythology more Mm. of Thor, of Asgard, of the realms uh, the Dark Elves and that stuff it's stuff that I like, so I'm glad to see it. But it's kind of clumsily done. There's a lot of scenes of exposition, a lot of telling not showing. There's lots more of Asgard, though. We see more of the different realms, and it all looks great. It's very well realised. I do think it's really interesting the sort of... The, the whole aligned worlds, the jumping between gaps in worlds and things, it almost seems like a test run for the multiverse, like watching it now after having seen some of the more recent movies. They're doing a lot of the same things, they're just not using the same words to describe it. Yeah. But Malekith is the worst villain, is the worst villain in the MCU up till yeah. this point. He is the second worst villain in the MCU, full stop. I will get to what I believe to be the actual worst later on uh, in this segment but he should be really interesting though that's the problem yeah, yeah. he is a he, he's a dark elf that's existed since before the beginning of the current universe he's out to find he's out to like harness the dark and you know take away all light in the world yeah. I mean
2: his whole thing should be this really interesting nihilistic
1: yeah it should be cosmic horror yeah. you know
2: he's a lot different than he is here in the comics he's more
0: frankly Loki-esque mm. he's a Dark elf. That means he's he's got a sense of scale, scope, and showmanship. Yeah. Absolute waste of Christopher Eccleston.
1: Well, that's the thing with all of the, a lot of these MCU movies is the number of really effective villains that they have is pretty small. Yeah, I mean it's it's sort of the opposite problem to what the DC movies have always had, which is that their villains in the DC movies more often than not tend to be more interesting than their heroes. Mm. It's the opposite problem with the MCU. You you brought up Loki, and and the Loki thing continues to be an excellent side plot. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoy Hiddleston in all of these movies. I think it is. Pretty fantastic to see him do his thing and to see the arc that he goes on. I mean, I love the fact that he was originally supposed to die in this movie, but test audiences didn't believe it. They thought it was a trick, and so they were sort of forced (laughs) to retcon it in reshoots. Yeah. Very strong performances. Hemsworth is more confident in this one. The action is very fun. I really want them to bring back Darcy and Selvig in a bigger way. In the future, I kind of miss them.
0: Darcy showed up in one division.
1: Yeah, and they both had like a little role in Love and Thunder, but I would like to see them involved to a greater degree again.
2: I do love the fact that Selvig has just sort of lost his mind in the interim. Yeah,
1: well, it's sort of this. It's the same kind of thing that happened to Tony in Iron Man, where they both and and Thanos even says something along those lines in. I think it's Infinity War, he says to Tony, you're not the only one cursed with knowledge. This idea that they've seen beyond the veil, they have a greater understanding that they were never supposed to have, and that that's kind of really freaked them out. That's an interesting element that I like, and I kind of wish had been threaded through more.
2: Yeah, it could have been lent into more about why Thanos actually knows about Iron Man.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely watching the whole series in a row, you see... You see the gaps in the track that they've laid for themselves. You see the overall arcs that they've been vying for, but because necessarily it it is still segmented by different franchise and different directors, you know, it's not like that there is one writer on all of these things. You you do see, and especially in these first two phases where they were a lot less planned out than they are now. They
0: were kind of making it up
2: as they went along.
1: Whereas now they're actually like pretty they've got that locked down a long way in yeah. advance. They it didn't. may not
2: seem it at the moment in the current phase, but there is a plan.
1: Yeah, watching these first two phases again, I, I don't know what everyone's complaining about with yeah. the current phase because people say what was the what is the point of phase four? Well it's the point of the point of it is the multiverse. Tell me what the yeah. point of phase two is. Tell me what the point of any of these movies. Is. The only movie that has any impact whatsoever in terms of the ongoing plot is Captain America the Winter Soldier.
2: Setting up the stones.
1: Yeah, but like the whole idea is that, oh, f- phase four is somehow less focused. No, it's way more focused than what oh, this is doing. Oh,
2: definitely. It's just we're not at that point where we... We don't have that overview yet.
1: We don't see it yet. Anyways, this is available on Disney+, Plus if anyone's interested. I next watched Captain America, the Winter Soldier, directed by Joe and Anthony Russo. It is based on the character created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, and in it, S.H.I.E.L.D. is compromised. And uh, Captain America, played by Chris Evans, and Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, go on the run to figure out what's going on and how badly S.H.I.E.L.D. has been compromised and they find out secrets connected to S.H.I.E.L.D.'s earliest days and they have to decide who to trust. This is very much like an old 70s thriller. It's very The Manchurian Candidate or The Parallax View or Three Days of the Condor. It brings Captain America into the present really well. For me, this is the best use of the Chris Evans Captain America because it sort of sets his sort of traditional mum's apple pie, Americana kind of idealism against the knotty reality of the 21st yeah. century. You know, sort of a post-9-11, post-War on Terror, post-Patriot Act kind of a world. They don't do enough with the character, or any of the characters, really. I would have liked to see them take some more chances with the characters. Not necessarily the plot. The plot takes a lot of chances, but I would like to see them do more interesting things with the character. There is some, some interesting stuff with sharon carter sort of the the legacy that she is inheriting from her aunt but they should have lent into it more i would have liked to see more of that it is distracted by intrigue a lot of the time but that intrigue is very cool so i can i can forgive it for the most part it's proper spy stuff it's yeah. taking it it's taking a gritty attack here than any of the movies have before them
2: it, it has that kind of plot of the main character is betrayed by their organization. They have to go on the run using their wits. Mm. It's classic spy shit.
1: Yeah, and great action, lots of creativity for the set pieces. I mean,
2: the Winter Soldier is such a cool look, and his his leitmotif written by Henry Jackman is one of the best villain themes in the MCU.
1: Oh, yeah, the score is great, and you're right, that sort of shrieking sound.
2: It almost sounds like a train whistle
1: yeah. and screaming. But there's some great performances here. Robert Redford is used well. He is used exactly in, in a similar way as iconography, as, as Captain America is, this sort of, you know, symbol of the 70s paranoia film of all the president's men and of, you know, he basically as this red-blooded American male. Like, they use him really well in that way. Emily Van Camp is very good. You get Alan Dale popping up, always happy to see Jim Robinson turn up in the international world, but it's it's really it's here that they figure out what makes the the sequels to the standalone movies work. And it's what they've lent into going forward. They all have to have a different flavor. Each sub-franchise has to have a different flavor from the others. Guardians of the Galaxy is a space opera, Thor is a fantasy comedy, Captain America is gritty spy stuff and that is what makes it much more successful going forward, is leaning into that kind of delineation.
2: There are two great scenes in this movie. There's the scene with Fury as shit's popping off with S.H.I.E.L.D., and there's the sequence where it's Captain America versus the Winter Soldier on the freeway. Hmm.
0: I've seen someone edit together that scene, but replaced Captain America with Tobey Maguire's (laughs) Spider-Man. Yeah. It is honestly too good.
1: Someone spent a long time on that. Is so it like Spider Man, Spider Man, or is it Bully Maguire? Bully, Bully Maguire. Maguire. Yeah.
2: I'm going to put some dirt in
1: your eye. That's the multiverse movie I want. Let, give me the multiverse Bully Maguire spin off.
0: Because he's a fundamentally different character to Tobey Maguire's Spider Man.
1: Yeah, instead of what if, it's you what? <laughs> <laughs> This is available for streaming on Disney Plus as well. All of them are. All of the movies that I'm talking about today that are in the MCU. Next up, Avengers Age of Ultron, directed by Joss Whedon. It's based on the comic team, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And the Avengers are cleaning up in the wake of Winter Soldier. And they find Loki's spear from the first Avengers movie. Tony Stark played again by Robert Downey Jr., is still obsessed with preparedness to protect the world. And so he decides unwisely to use this spear to create, the power of this spear to create, an artificial intelligence named Ultron. He's voiced by James Spader. And uh, he goes rogue pretty much immediately. This is easily the messiest movie in the MCU. It's not the worst, but it's the messiest. It needed more time in the oven. There are too many plot threads going on all over the place. And certainly, like, that's the -the behind-the-scenes story of this, is this is the movie that ended up seeing Whedon leave the MCU because he was tired of all of the different masters that he had to serve. And we will be getting into some of this in the production history I've prepared for Phase 2 in the Deep Dive, but this was a particularly troubled era for the MCU. You. Ultron is wasted here Spader is great I oh, wish yeah. that he had had more to do I wish that he had been brought back I hope he's brought back in the future like that wasn't him in Multiverse of Man no, when they no. brought that the Ultron was the, program that was the back.
0: person they got to do the Ultron voice for what if yeah
1: yeah it was also he also did the Red Skull performance in Infinity yeah. War Endgame
0: he's really good picking up when they
2: can't get actors so. yeah
1: he'll be playing Iron Man soon yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: replace everyone with him i I love the idea that if michael keaton doesn't want to come back to deal with all of these superhero movies and their bullshit that they just get this guy to voice vulture and they just never take the mask
1: off oh no michael keaton if you guys need to see morbius because you like for better or worse they are setting that thing up as a linchpin for whatever they're doing on the sony end of things michael
2: keaton is ride or die
1: Michael Keaton seems to be heavily involved in what they're planning going forward. But the character arcs here are kind of forced. I mean, this whole romantic subplot between Black Widow and Hulk is out of nowhere and is never, ever resolved in the whole MCU. Thor ghost to hang out in a cave and have a bath and watch trailers for the next phase. Like, it's a weird... Like I said, there are just too many masters to be served. The introduction of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver is not handled particularly well. Neither of them are particularly interesting. I mean, Scarlet Witch is going to go on to become one of the most interesting figures in the MCU, but you wouldn't tell it from this first installment. And they both have these very dodgy faux-European accents that they're having to contend with. It's interesting how they just dropped that as the movies went on.
2: And then slowly but surely brought Wonders back in.
1: Yeah. Elizabeth Olsen, it's interesting, you jump from this to Civil War and Elizabeth Olsen is like, brought it down... And then it's phased out completely by Infinity War. But this is good table setting for the Civil War movie that's headed up, that's coming out soon after this. It's interesting stuff and interesting themes, but it's not thorough enough. It's all going to be done so much better in Mm. Civil War. Vision is a great add as a character, Mm. though. I really enjoyed Paul Bettany in the role. And there's lots of foreshadowing. There's a, there's a particular scene, an argument between Captain America and Iron Man after Ultron is created, where Iron Man says, you know, why are we bothering with all of these people down here, you know, that up there, and he points at space, you know, that's the end game. Mm. And Captain America says, we'll deal with that when we have to, and Tony says, we'll lose. Mm. There's a lot of stuff that's threaded through that scene that is, is actually... I mean, I think it's pretty clear at that point that they had a, had a general idea of where they were going. They're very good acting. I really enjoy, especially Robert Downey Jr. in this, but as I said, Paul Bettany, James Spader, they're both, they're both very fun. And it's always nice to see the chemistry between all of the different Avengers cast. Cool set pieces. The sound design was really underwhelming though. It's not something I normally talk about, but it's like, seemed really inconsistent at least on the blu-ray that i watched yeah it's just treading water and it's weighed down by too much baggage the
2: score's pretty good yeah
1: yeah i suppose i mean there's not much here that really stood out to me but like i said it's not the worst the worst is ant-man uh the last movie i'm talking about today directed by peyton reed it's based on the character created by stan lee larry lieber and jack kirby And it follows a recently released burglar named Scott Lang, played by Paul Rudd. He is recruited by Hank Pym, a retired scientist slash special agent slash previous ant-man played by michael douglas he used to be an ant-man for shield where he had the suit that would shrink him down to the size of an ant and he'd go on spy missions for them but he retired after a mission went wrong and now an evil businessman named darren cross played by Corey stoll has almost cracked that technology himself and it's too dangerous so hank recruits scott to break into the business and steal the prototype this is my least favorite of the MCU. Full stop. It's probably not the objective worst in terms of its, like, quality and structure and everything, but it is, for me, my least favourite. It's definitely the most dull. This should have been a comedy, but it isn't. Not outright it doesn't commit in the way the guardians or thor ragnarok does it's so toothless and bland it's like an, a family action movie from the 2000s it's like you're watching the pacifier or something it can never walk the line of acknowledging that its premise is inherently ridiculous you know it can never acknowledge the fact that watching paul rudd ride around on the back of a flying ant is absurd and it doesn't do what what guardians did which we will talk about which is like Guardians knows full well that the talking tree and the talking raccoon is a crazy concept, and they have fun with that, but Ant-Man just wants to be so so stone-faced about it, no, 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 take it seriously, this is a serious thing, and, you know, it's so dangerous if any of this technology got out in the world, but, like, it never, ever contends with the fact that this is funny, and it should be funny. (laughs) I'm just not interested in the heist that they're doing here either. It's not very involved. I mean, there aren't very many steps to it. I mean, there was a way to do this that was like Mission Impossible 1 or an Ocean's Eleven movie where they just made that like the really intricate, interesting way of doing it. And that was the whole movie. But instead, it's getting distracted by all these other things.
2: There aren't enough wrinkles.
1: Yeah, exactly. And an absolutely terrible villain. The worst in the MCU, in my opinion. Just a shouty, evil businessman. TM, who has no shades to his character whatsoever. He has no motivation other than being an evil businessman. He is a, a blank space. He is, he is a prop, not a character. And it is really awful. Like they strand Corey Stoll with absolutely nothing.
0: I quite like the yellow
1: jacket suit. Yeah. That's I mean, cool the design, design stuff is all pretty fun. Like, that's the stuff too, is that they have terrific effects work. Mm. like oh, when yeah. you actually shrink down to ant size the way that the world you know you get all that honey the sh- honey I shrunk the kids thing where its mundane things become threatening i mean that's all done really really well uh, and they get some great action out of that when they engage with that premise evangeline lilly as as hope basically uh hank's daughter Scott's love interest. She's just a non entity. Paul Rudd is way less charming than he usually is. They spend all of this time with Scott Lang's irritating friends, led by Michael Pena, and they are the most frustrating, the most annoying characters in any MCU movie, as far as I'm concerned. I was extremely unhappy when I found out that they came back in the sequel.
2: That's interesting, because that is not the general consensus.
1: Well, I was not having it. (laughs) (laughs) Not having a bar with it. But this is made for children. And, you know, that's fine, but that's not the series that it exists in. The series that it exists in has promised, you know, for as silly and fantastical as it gets, that there's still a dramatic weight to it and there's still something to latch onto. But... I just don't see why I should be interested in this. And I don't see why you would want Scott to be a member of the Avengers. I understand why you'd want Hank Pym to be a member of the Avengers. I understand why you'd want Hope. I don't understand why you'd want Scott, a fairly incompetent person who, by his own admission, is not as talented as the other two. Well,
2: they play with that in the second movie.
1: I've seen the second movie, but it still does absolutely nothing when I'm like, I don't want Scott turning up in Civil War and Avengers Infinity War, I think it'd be great if Michael Douglas turned up in those movies. (laughs) But yes, this is the closest that the MCU has ever come to boring, and that is the absolute worst thing I can say about it. But that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching?
0: For us, we have watched two things this week, the first of which was Lightyear, which is a sci-fi animated film from Pixar. While spending years attempting to return home, Maroon's space ranger Buzz Lightyear, played by Chris Evans, encounters an army of ruthless robots commanded by Zurg, played by James Brolin, who is attempting to steal the fuel source that Buzz has used to travel through time at light speed. Lawson talked about this a couple of episodes back, so I'm not going to get too into it. But I really did enjoy this. It's not for kids, even though there are certain elements. It's, like,
2: on the border.
0: It's dealing with
2: a lot yeah. of weighty themes, like severe levels of guilt that would basically kill any normal person.
1: I said it back when I talked about it. It's If Christopher Nolan made a Buzz Lightyear movie, yeah. this is the Buzz Lightyear movie he would yeah. make.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's so interesting and weird but it still has,
1: like, a kiddie tone, which... I was thinking about it, actually, in the week since I talked about it, and I kind of think that this would have made more sense as a live-action spin-off mm. than yeah. an animated film.
0: The animation is...
2: Top-notch. Absolutely. It's gorgeous. Absolutely
0: beautiful. I love the use of light. That's one of the things that really jumped out to me when the f- trailer first came out. Yeah. The animation style isn't exactly lifelike, but the use of lighting is. That really gives a animated film a lot of visual depth. And that goes a long way to things like scale. I also quite enjoy Chris Evans as Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. It's a different character, ultimately. But there are certain through lines that carry through.
1: You see what I mean about there being the absolute perfect role for a Tim Allen cameo that they absolutely missed?
0: And that would have been really, really dope. I quite like how they translate Zerg here. When the trailers first started coming out, I was super concerned that Zerg would not be present.
2: Yeah. The armor design, the fact that he's got...
0: The triple cannon.
2: Triple cannon.
0: That's some really cool stuff.
2: Zerg was always my favorite character idea from the Toy Story movies, he was always my favourite, so seeing him here, it was like I was a kid again, and just getting all of these little references to bits from Toy Story 2 Yeah, was fantastic, like, one of the parts in the final set piece is a pretty much word-for-word reference to one of the parts from Toy Story 2, which... I loved so much. And Chris Evans, he is, in certain moments, very close to the Tim Allen voice.
0: Again, I just had a really, really great time with this. This is made for me, I think. Yeah. Beyond, is it for adults, is it for children? I think it's for the people who grew up with Toy Story. Yeah. It's for the people who wanted a cool animated sci-fi story with, frankly, a ridiculous amount of legit science behind it, like light (laughs) speed travel, time dilation, that sort of thing, and honestly, it was a lot of fun. I would have liked if the IMAX ratio thing that they do on Disney Plus now was a bit more consistent, but ultimately, yeah, really good time. The side characters were very amusing, Socks was great. great.
2: I I thought Socks would get annoying, but he never did, because he always had that slight detachment from human feeling. (laughs) Which I very much appreciated.
0: But yeah, this is good for pretty much anybody. It's inoffensive in most ways, and it just looks gorgeous. This is a good reference piece. Yeah, uh, if you got a really good TV and good sound system too, really good sound. And I always get a kick out of Buzz Lightyear shooting a gun, <laughs> shooting like a god's honest like
2: pistol-looking <laughs> laser gun. It that's, that's that was really some fun of the fight too.
0: scenes felt. Kind of Doom-esque.
2: Yeah. Which was a lot of fun. The robots have a slightly Doom guy esque yeah. silhouette to them, which was fun. And the score by Michael Giacchino is fun as well. There's a lot of really cool Zerg leitmotif.
0: Nothing I'll really dip back into, but really services the movie when it needs yeah. to. You can find Lightyear on Disney+. Plus.
2: Obviously. We also watched another Amityville movie. This time we watched a more modern one. And this is one that actually has a studio behind it. Blumhouse. And Dimension Films. We watched Amityville, The Awakening. Which follows a desperate single mother who moves with her three children into the notorious, supposedly haunted, real-life Amityville house. To try and use its dark powers to cure her comatose son. Things go horribly wrong. This was actually really interesting, and it is held together by a well-known and well-respected cast. You've got Jennifer Jason Leigh as the mother, Bella Thorne as the main character, McKenna Grace in what was, at the time of filming, her first film role, and Cameron Monaghan as the comatose brother. This had a...
1: Kurtwood Smith, come on. And
2: Kurtwood Smith is here too.
1: The dad from that 70s show. Never watched it. And of course, the bad guy from Robocop.
2: Yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. Kurtwood Smith and Thomas Mann also star. This movie had a very interesting history. So this was originally going to be released in 2014 when it was filmed, but it kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. It had release dates stated as January 2015, April 2016, January 2017, and June 2017, and eventually got a limited theatrical release in October 2017, before its release in November of 2018. This was very good. It's better than the other modern Amityville movies. By a long shot, it's saying something about the franchise, about how... If you put enough energy onto a place, onto a thing, into a person, something is bound to happen.
1: Yeah, but that's like saying that eating a half-finished hamburger out of the trash is better than eating actual shit. Like, (laughs) there's not a high bar to to hurdle here.
0: What I think we're getting at is, with independently produced shot, and managed films... There is no depth to which they can sink in terms of quality. With a studio fair, there's a flaw to it, you know? This doesn't slam down into the floor of it. It's perfectly serviceable as an amateur film. It is a story about family. And ultimately, that's the strength of some of the best amateur films, be it either discussions of blood family or found family. Our favorite ones so far have been, obviously, the original Stuff like uh, Amityville, It's About Time, Amityville Generations. Those are all about what it's like to exist in a family space in a location that doesn't forget generational trauma. It's it's about family annihilation. It's about loss, grief, and rage. Those are the most interesting Amityville films, and this is one of those.
2: It does something interesting with the premise because it's not about the male figures – in a family being corrupted. It's about what happens to a woman when they have that kind of trauma around them. It is about trying to utilize any sense of spiritualism or mysticism to try and help this comatose young man. And it's all about the desperation of the mother played by Jennifer Jason Leigh who does a really interesting performance here, but we usually in this movie follow Bella Thorne's Belle, who is also a very interesting character in this movie, because she's completely unaware about the history of this house. This movie takes place in a world where the Amityville movies exist. They show them, they show clips from the original with James Rowland and Margot Kidder,
1: do they show any of the shitty ones? No. That would be so fun if like they were watching like Amityville Vibrator or something.
2: <laughs> I
0: would have loved it if at one point one of Bell's friends says, Only watch the ones from the nineties after that they get pretty shit.
2: Yeah, but isn't that basically like the definition of a studio punching down?
0: I don't care. <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the more recent ones need to be punched down on.
2: Well I mean To be fair though, in the movie they literally have a character say, well, we've got the original, we've got the sequel, and we've got the remake. Do you guys want to watch the remake for a more modern audience? And both the other characters basically like shoo it away. So there's a little bit of Platinum Dunes shade being thrown here. It's doing stuff that's very interesting with the idea of the house and the demonic presence here. The demon is put on the back foot for a few scenes in this movie, and that's always interesting to see.
0: The spirit of the Amityville house's whole deal is the son of the family has to commit the slayings, or the father of the family has to commit the slayings. That's how it functions, that is its modus operandi. But what does it do when the only male member of the family is comatose? It inhabits the body and attempts to basically... Stitch him back together.
2: Nerve by nerve almost. Trying to get him to the point where he can lift a shotgun.
0: And I only mention this because that's one of the really fascinating elements of Cameron Monaghan's performance. Hmm. And he does a lot of eye acting here. Yeah, Uh, Oftentimes in his other roles like Shameless and his role as the twins in Gotham. it's, It's a lot of dialogue stuff and he's really, really good with that. But now he just has to rely on physicality and he's really, really great here. He has a amazingly expressive face and really expressive eyes.
2: They do a lot of really cool things with, like, fake bodies and fake limbs and makeup and CG enhancements to makeup to make him look thinner, to make him look like he is has been in a coma for a couple years after an accident. And... When it gets to the point of things really popping off, when the demon has properly got its claws in and wants to start, you know, going room to room with a shotgun, that's when the best moment of the movie happens. There's also a really interesting score done by a guy who goes by the pseudonym ROB, R-O-B, all in capital letters, and it has a kind of almost American Horror Story coven, kind of sound a lot of Mm. vocalizations a lot of solo female vocals which i was very interested by but overall i really did enjoy this and it's a really interesting little horror movie that does interesting stuff with amityville and it's held together by great performances from its cast specifically bella Thorne and cameron monaghan
0: all right so you can find that on stan i believe yes i also want to Briefly mentioned that we started the new season of American Horror Stories. The first episode I... It's called Dollhouse. Dollhouse.
2: Dennis O'Hare plays an insane doll maker who kidnaps women, forcing them to become the perfect housewives and yeah. perfect mothers for his newly motherless son.
0: Yeah, this was great. This is what Horror Stories should Exactly. I'm not going to mention, like, the spoiler to it for anyone who's going to be listening, but it connects back to a lot of the other stuff in the way it should. Not this whole return-to-murder-house nonsense that they drove into the goddamn ground. Because
2: in the first season of Horror Stories, they spend three fucking episodes on that, completely defeating the point of it being a shorter episode-by-episode anthology.
0: In the first season... It got to the point where I was like, you clearly are obsessed with the murder house.
2: They clearly wanted to make a murder house sequel
0: series. Honestly, I got sick of the murder house. Mm. My favorite ones of the last season were independent stories, confined, condensed, clean. And Dollhouse was really, really good at being that, beyond its, frankly, tangential connection to one of the series.
2: And also, like it's tapping into... A small subsection of horror, which these should be. These should be, like, their version of Rosemary's Baby, like they did in the first season. Their version yeah. of a giallo. Their version of a shorter slasher in the woods. Their version of
0: Take scary creepy shit dolls. and just make a story out of it. Yeah. It shouldn't be that hard, but Season 1 made it look really, really difficult to do. Season 2 so far... Has made it seem as simple as it should be. Yeah.
2: Interesting little idea. Film it, make it, put it out.
1: I think that in the flagship show that this year they're going to do a shadow drop. This is my theory. Yeah. Because they have, they have confirmed, like, literally last week that it is launching, they said, fall 2022. So sometime in the next four months. And yet we've had no casting news. We've had nothing about the setting or the plot or anything. And if it's coming out in the next four months, that I'm pretty sure they'd be filming now. So this is my theory, is that whatever it is, it's going to be... I don't know what the impetus would be behind that, but I'm, I'm interested to see where that's going. I hope they keep doing these American horror stories kind of thing as well. I think that... I mean, Ryan Murphy had that contract at Netflix, that overall deal at Netflix that ended up producing a few things but like it seems like he's really returned to the fx fold he's really embraced that i mean they just resurrected feud a couple of months ago Mm. (laughs) that those american sports story and american love story and
0: hopefully they could do something about ratchet
1: well that's that was when that was ordered that was ordered for two seasons but god Mm. knows where that second season is supposed to be
2: And Sarah Paulson has gone on record as, in an interview, saying that she wants to move away from the Murphy-verse. Which is fair. She spent a lot of her career doing these. She spent ten bloody years basically doing everything Ryan Murphy wanted, with bits and pieces elsewhere. So, I can understand why she wants to, you know, spread her wings a little bit, see what else she can find. Because at least Evan Peters had, you know, the X-Men movies and Kick-Ass and all of that kind of thing, and Mm. she's pretty much been like, what, the sister in Bird Box who dies? I don't
1: know, I feel like she's had a decent amount of... I mean, she had Glass.
2: Oh yeah. But like, she's such a talented
0: actor, it'd be good to see her like spread her wings a bit. Mrs.
1: America, the FX series that was not... Not Ryan Murphy, but was like about the women's lib movement. She was in Ocean's 8, she was in The Post, Carol. I mean, she's got some, some stuff here. You're right that she's been in a hell of a lot of these. She's Impeachment,
2: Ratchet, People basically OJ. every season of Horror Story.
1: Yeah, I think that she is in every season except 1984. Yeah. Feud, although that was one episode.
0: Yeah. You could find American Horror Stories on Binge. There you have it for what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Guardians of the Galaxy.
3: Now, yeah, hey, cool man, no problem. No problem at all. Who are you? Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man? Legendary outlaw? Forget it. We arrested these five on Xandar. Check out the rap sheets. Drax, AKA the Destroyer. Since his wife and family were killed, he's been on a rampage across the galaxy in a search for vengeance. Gamora. Soldier, assassin, wanted on over a dozen counts of murder. Rocket, wanted on over 50 charges of vehicular theft and escape from lockup. What the hell? Groot, he's been traveling recently as Rocket's personal houseplant slash muscle. Peter Jason Quill, he's also known as Star Lord. Who calls him that? Himself, mostly. He's wanted largely on charges of minor assault, public intoxication, and fraud. Oh, I'm sorry. I I didn't know how this machine worked. Hey, 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 that's mine. Your arms, you're you son of a Hey, take those headphones off right now. Yeah. Ah! Call themselves the Guardians of the Galaxy. What a bunch of a holes.
1: I'm hooked on a feeling. I'm high on the That
3: you're in love with me. I'm
2: hooked on a feeling.
1: That was the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy. It is a comedic superhero space opera directed by James Gunn, and it is based on the Marvel Comics team of the same name created by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. We pick up with puckish rogue Peter Quill, played by Chris Pratt, a human being who was abducted from Earth mere minutes after his mother died of cancer. The architects of his kidnapping were a crew of intergalactic mercenaries called Ravagers led by the growling blue bounty hunter Yondu, played by Michael Rooker. Years later, though, Peter is ready for a clean break, and so he breaks away from the others and snatches an artifact they've been sent to collect before they can get to it. He's going solo. Unfortunately for him, that artifact is an infinity stone, a powerful relic that predates the Big Bang, and someone else is looking for it. That someone is Thanos, played by Josh Brolin the purple gentleman responsible for the Chitauri invasion in New York in the Avengers. He'd made a deal with the rogue alien warlord Ronan, played by Lee Pace, for the stone in exchange for support in his campaigns, and he's pretty irritated by Quill's intervention. He dispatches his adopted daughter Gamora, played by Zoe Saldana, to catch up with Quill and retrieve the stone, but is doubly pissed off when she uses the opportunity to betray him and take the stone for herself. He's looking for all the Infinity Stones, you see, and if he gets them, he'll be able to rewrite reality the way he sees fit. Gamora knows what a psychopath he is. She is a survivor from a planet he decimated, and has decided to prevent him from completing his collection. Of course, this means that Thanos and Ronan are now on her trail, though, and she's kind of a sitting duck after a belligerent quill chases her down in public, resulting in their arrest. Two bounty hunters hired by Yondu to find Quill are also caught up in the scuffle. Groot, played by Vin Diesel, a monosyllabic tree only able to speak one short sentence in different intonations, and Rocket Raccoon, voiced by Bradley Cooper, a wise guy animal subjected to horrific experiments that gave him human intelligence. The four are sent to a prison planet, where they meet fellow convict Drax the Destroyer, played by Dave Bautista a literal-minded bodybuilder driven to avenge the death of his wife and child at the hands of Thanos and Ronan. The whole group don't exactly click, but they've no choice but to team up to escape imprisonment. Together, they just might get everything they want. For Gamora, freedom. For Drax, revenge. And for Quill, Rocket, Groot, lots of money. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I
2: do like this a lot.
1: It is the biggest swing that the MCU
2: took in these early years. And it's a big swing of a film itself. In terms of the MCU, it's big. And as a sci-fi movie, its tone is interesting as well. I like all of the characters here except Rocket. I don't like what Bradley Cooper is doing here. I know I'm in the minority in this. I just don't like the performance here.
1: You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go.
2: I quite
0: like Guardians of the Galaxy. It's never been my particular interest in the MCU, the whole guardian side of it. I think they are too jokey at times. But this movie has a good mix of serious stuff here. Every one of the Guardians is broken in some way either due to their past experiences or by just virtue of what they are, in case of Rocket. I like Ronin here, even though he is simply another one of those shouty villains.
1: Let me cue myself up here. Uh, I love this movie. I think it is one of the best movies in the MCU. I really enjoy the expansion out to space. You are right, John, it is the biggest swing that they ever took i don't think it's possible for them to take a bigger swing than this because there will be less distance to travel now between what they're yeah. doing and where they're going but going from iron man captain america at all straight into talking raccoon and talking tree in space comedy that was huge and it was really the indicator that they could the sky was the limit really for the mcu i do have a production history here a production history not only on this movie but on Phase 2 of the MCU as a whole, and it is a little bit spicy. After the Avengers came out, Marvel was riding high, but now we enter the sophomore slump. 2013 saw the release of Iron Man 3 and Thor The Dark World. Neither of them really landed, critically or with fans, but 2014 was a bright spot. Winter Soldier came out and then Guardians of the Galaxy, undoubtedly the highlights of Phase 2. Guardians has its roots in the very early days of the MCU, back when they were trying to figure out the best way forward. Uh, There were a lot of ideas workshopped then. Marvel started a screenwriter's program that was just about prepping potential ideas and scripts. Some might get made, some might not. They were just trying to see what would work. And of the list of properties, one was Guardians of the Galaxy, and that is the one that screenwriter Nicole Perlman chose when she was offered a spot in the program. I've quote here from Perlman. We got to choose from a list of half a dozen properties that they had that were lesser Marvel properties. There was no guarantee that these projects would ever get made. And there were properties on that list that were much better known, things that people had heard of. But I saw Guardians of the Galaxy. I took it. Though Perlman retains a credit on the film, James Gunn would rewrite the material pretty much entirely. Yet it was Perlman who took the crucial first steps in figuring out how best to integrate the cosmic element in. She also chose the lineup, although the villain in her original treatment was Thanos, not Ronan. That was changed after the Avengers came out, and Marvel decided to use him as a, as a bigger scope sort of a villain. Uh, She also had Peter Quill's paternity matching the comics. In the comics, he is the son of the space emperor, Jason. Joss Whedon was shown in early draft and particularly hated this space royalty element and also encouraged them to make it weirder. The film was officially announced at the 2012 San Diego Comic Con, and they were soon looking for directors. They considered future MCU directors Peyton Reed, who would make the Ant-Man movies, Uh, and directing duo Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck, who would go on to make the Captain Marvel movie. But James Gunn was ultimately selected. And it was seen at the time as a pretty weird choice. He had started his career with Troma, the notorious low-budget exploitation movie company whose films were in such intentional bad taste that their YouTube channel was banned for violating community guidelines.
2: Oh, Troma.
1: His more respectable work was also pretty weird. He wrote the live action Scooby Doo movies and had directed two low budget films the alien parasite body horror movie Slither and the incredibly dark, incredibly graphic superhero satire Super. He also, and this was, this is very strange, a little entry on his filmography. He wrote that video game Lollipop Chainsaw about Mm -hmm. a cheerleader like fighting zombies. And, like, they just announced, like, the other month that they're remaking that. Not a remaster, like, a full-scale, like, Resident Evil 2-3 sort of remake for this game that no one played. Hmm. I suspect they think if they chuck the James Gunn name on it, it'll mean more now than it meant in 2013. Yeah. Gunn credits Perlman with establishing the concept, but he contends that she should have gotten a story-by credit rather than a screenplay credit in arbitration. I have a quote here from Gunn. She definitely got the ball rolling. The original concept was there, that was sort of like what's in the movie. And then there's the story and the characters. Those were pretty much recreated by me. In a cold script, everything is pretty different. The story's different, there's no Walkman, the character arcs are different. It's not about the same stuff. But that's how the WGA works. They like first writers an awful lot. It was Gunn that brought in Yondu and Nebula, but it was Marvel that insisted on including Thanos as a supporting character. I have another quote here from Gunn. There's pressure with Thanos, because you're setting up this gigantic character that, in one way, isn't really a part of your movie. His presence doesn't really serve being in Guardians, and having Thanos be in that scene was more helpful to the Marvel Universe than it was to Guardians of the Galaxy. I always wanted to have Thanos in there, but from a structural standpoint, you don't need him. There was a big search for the, for the right person to play Star-Lord. Among the big names considered were Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Zachary Levi, Garrett Headland. John Gallagher Jr., James Marsden, and Michael Rosenbaum. While some of the actors that got far enough to screen test include Joel Edgerton, Jack Houston, Jim Sturgis, Lee Pace, who Gunn would instead cast as Ronan, and, bizarrely, Eddie Redmayne. I can't see that. Can you imagine Eddie Redmayne delivering the get a black light in here, it looks like a Jackson Pollock painting? Can you imagine him trying to deliver that line?
2: No, it ju- oh, no I, I can't. That sounds weird in
1: my head. Chris Pratt was cast after the Parks and Recreation showrunner Michael Schur graciously agreed to release him to do the movie. He even managed to convince NBC to do a big two-part episode of Parks and Recreation where the characters went to London, which is where the Guardians of the Galaxy crew was filming so that Pratt could still be in it a little bit. But production took place without actors cast for the roles of Rocket, Groot, or Thanos. They were instead played by stand-ins on set. Rocket's stand-in is Gunn's brother, Sean Gunn, who also plays Yondu's lieutenant, Kraglin. Uh, he's continued in both of those functions ever since. But disturbingly, Marvel considered Adam Sandler and Jim Carrey for Rocket's voice before oh, settling God. on Bradley Cooper. Vin Diesel was cast as Groot and recorded his one line many times over in different intonations appropriate to context. Gunn told him the meaning of every one of the lines. He wrote out what they meant in English so that Diesel would know what he was saying, and he even dubbed himself into foreign languages. Josh Brolin was cast as Thanos. Amanda Seyfried was offered the role of Gamora, but turned it down due to both the intensive makeup involved and a lack of confidence in the project. I have a quote from her years later. I didn't want to be part of the first Marvel movie that bombed. I said, who wants to see a movie about a talking tree and a raccoon? Which is clearly, I was very wrong. Zoe Saldana was cast as Gamora instead. Professional wrestler Dave Batista beat out Jason Momoa for the role of Drax. It was his first big film role, though. He had previously done some low-budget movies. Uh, he'd done an episode of Chuck as well. And he, of course, done... The Scorpion King 3 Battle for Redemption. He was so excited about getting the job that he took extra acting lessons to ready himself for it. And the movie was released in the United States on the 1st of August 2014. Its widest release there was in 4,088 theatres, and it was number one at the box office against the James Brown biopic Get On Up, which, incidentally, starred Chadwick Boseman as James Brown. Guardians was a huge financial success. It made $773 million worldwide on a $170 million budget, and it was released on the 7th of August 2014 in Australia. Its widest release here was in 586 theatres, and it was number one at the box office against the 100-foot journey, and And so it goes. It made $23 million of its gross here. It received critical acclaim, It has a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics' consensus there reads, Guardians of the Galaxy is just as irreverent as fans of the frequently zany Marvel comic would expect, as well as funny, thrilling, full of heart, and packed with visual splendour. Audiences agreed. The film received an A CinemaScore. The film was also nominated for and won a handful of awards. It was nominated for two Oscars, Best Achievement in Makeup and Hairstyling, and Best Achievement in Visual Effects. It was also nominated for those categories at the BAFTAs, but it actually won some awards at the Saturn Awards, which was very thrilled with this movie. They gave Chris Pratt Best Actor, James Gunn Best Director, they awarded it Best Makeup, Best Comic to Film Motion Picture, and they also nominated it for Best Production Design, Best Writing, Best Editing, Best Costumes, and Best Special Effects. It also had a presence at the MTV Movie Awards, where it was nominated for a large number of awards. Movie of the Year, Best Male Performance for Chris Pratt, Best Shirtless Performance for Chris Pratt, Best Duo for Bradley Cooper and Vin Diesel, Best Musical Moment for the opening sequence set to Come and Get Your Love, Best Comedic Performance for Chris Pratt, Best On-Screen Transformation for the transformation of Zoe Saldana into a green alien, and Best Hero for Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt was nominated for four awards for his performance and won none of them. But Phase 2 would go on to conclude in 2015 with Age of Ultron and Ant-Man. But the whole way through, it was riddled with problems behind the scenes. Now, I said that this was a spicy era of the MCU, and this is what I was referring to. Everything I'm about to talk about has... Not really been officially spoken about in public. This is coming in from reports from Variety, Hollywood Reporter, the Financial Times. I I really went scouring for this stuff to try and put it together into a chronological narrative. So all of this stuff is, is reporting that has come out from behind the scenes over the years, and it reveals a fairly troubled production for the MCU at this juncture. For instance, uh, Dark World, Thor the Dark World, was particularly fraught behind the scenes. Patty Jenkins was initially hired to direct. Natalie Portman had fought for her to be hired, and it was one of the only reasons that she wanted to do the movie. But conflicts between Jenkins and Marvel led to Jenkins leaving. Uh, Jenkins later told Vanity Fair, quote, I did not believe that I could make a good movie out of the script that they were planning on doing. I think it would have been a huge deal it would have looked like it was my fault. It would have looked like, oh my God, this woman directed it and she missed all these things. Portman was really unhappy, but was contractually obligated to continue. Jenkins' replacement, Alan Taylor, also had issues on the movie. I have a quote here from Taylor. The Marvel experience was particularly wrenching because I was sort of given absolute freedom while we were shooting. And then in post, it turned into a different movie. So that is something I hope never to repeat and don't wish upon anybody else. He has even gone so far as to, in recent years, suggest that he would be open to doing a Snyder Cut-style return to Thor The Dark World, although he says that Marvel's probably not interested in that. Ant-Man was originally set to be directed by Edgar Wright after a development cycle that actually is so long it predates the MCU entirely. He had cast every main role and was all set to roll camera before... The creative disagreements behind the scenes saw him exit the project less than three months before filming started and Peyton Reed was parachuted in to complete that film. This is a common theme for Phase 2 of the MCU. Jon Favreau reportedly chafed with the studio which contributed to him not directing Iron Man 3. Joss Whedon got into a ton of fights with them for Age of Ultron which contributed to his exit. For instance, for going to that Spar and watching the trailers for Phase 3 was not in Whedon's script. It was something that Marvel insisted upon. I have a quote here from Whedon. The dreams were not an executive favourite either. The dreams, the farmhouse, these were things I fought to keep. With the cave, it really turned into they pointed a gun at the farm's head and said, give us the cave or we'll take out the farm. In a civilised way. I respect these guys. They're artists. But that's when it got really, really unpleasant. Uh, an anonymous film agent gave a quote to The Hollywood Reporter around this period. Quote, There's a real arrogance, but in this environment where everybody's struggling to stay employed, their behavior is amplified. We don't have leverage. The movies are the stars. Behind the curtains, though, there was a much different battle going on at Marvel, which is easy to connect with the less impressive output. Kevin Feige is the creative architect of the MCU, but he had his own boss, and they weren't getting along. His boss was Ike Perlmutter, who had taken control of Marvel on its journey out of bankruptcy in the 90s, and to his credit, did a fantastic job of rebuilding the company over the next decade. He became Marvel's CEO in 2005, and he oversaw the initial film projects and the Disney sale. That said, he was an infamous micromanager and notoriously tight-fisted. This style might have helped a badly damaged company return to health, but it was starting to interfere with its continued success. In fact, it was starting to become a little bit embarrassing. There was one particular episode that quickly spread through Hollywood social circles, where an event for the Avengers ran out of food for attendees because Perlmutter had refused to pay extra for the appropriate quantity. At another press event, he had complained that journalists were being allowed a second drink. As recently as 2019, he was still personally reviewing his employees' expense reports. He was also becoming very controversial. He is, how shall I put this, very close to a certain very unpleasant former US president who did his job very unpleasantly. Mm-hmm. And he reportedly has a similar habit for offending people. He is alleged to have told colleagues that no one would notice the replacement of Terrence Howard with Don Cheadle because black people look the same. Oh,
2: yeesh, I damn.
1: He also insisted that there be fewer Black Widow toys made than the rest of the Avengers because he believed girl toys did not sell. Creatives in his orbit were fed up. People were leaving. A female colleague filed an internal complaint that during a disagreement, Perlmutter had told her that he had, quote, a bullet with her name on it. Reports circulated about him verbally abusing the chief financial officer of Disney Consumer Products for not using the spreadsheet format he preferred. I have a quote here from a Hollywood Reporter article. Some at Disney are so intimidated, says one source, that they believe he has spies or is listening in on phone calls, though this person allows that it could be paranoia. Or not. A Marvel veteran says, the way to curry favour is to tell Ike that someone spent more than he should have. Though Feige always held the company line in public, behind the scenes he and Perlmutter were clashing on a routine basis. Feige's hands were routinely being tied both by him and by the creative committee that Perlmutter maintained to monitor the MCU. They had become a creative nightmare for filmmakers. They tried to get James Gunn to remove the soundtrack from Guardians of the Galaxy. And it is their interventions that are reportedly a major reason Edgar Wright left Ant-Man. The tension had been building for years, and in fact, some sites report that Feige was close to quitting. The final showdown came when Perlmutter tried to shoot down the Avengers-heavy version of Captain America Civil War that Kevin Feige wanted. It came down to cost, and Perlmutter ultimately ordered that Iron Man be removed from the screenplay. Things had built to a head and Feige reportedly used the underwhelming reaction to the recent movies at that point to help escalate the disagreement to the desk of the then-Disney CEO, Bob Iger. Iger looked at the situation and removed Marvel Studios from Perlmutter's portfolio. Hmm. Marvel Studios was made independent, and Feige was given the creative freedom he wanted. Now he reports to Disney directly, instead of Perlmutter, and he quickly dismantled the creative committee. What's more, Iger basically single-handedly greenlit the Black Panther and Captain Marvel projects Feige had been fighting for. Perlmutter and his team had allegedly been blocking their progress forward because they believed that movies with black or female leads wouldn't perform at the box office. I have a quote here from Iger's own memoir, The Riot of a Lifetime. Quote, I called Ike and told him to tell his team to stop putting up roadblocks and ordered that we put both Black Panther and Captain Marvel into production. Both of those movies made over a billion dollars and Black Panther is the only MCU movie to get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. Both Civil War and Doctor Strange have their roots in the Perlmutter era, but 2017 is when you start to see the new regime stretch its wings, then really start to come in. And isn't that interesting that 2017 is when the MCU movie starts really routinely knocking it out of the park with stuff like Guardians 2, Spider-Man Homecoming... Thor, Ragnarok, the next year, Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame. It's interesting that you can see that progression. But in 2019, Perlmutter's influence over the MCU vanished entirely. Although during this initial stout, she had retained control of the TV and animation units, the bits that were at that point responsible for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all of the ill-fated things like the the Netflix stuff and the Inhumans, Agent Carter, etc., they were taken from him too in 2019 and given to Feige to help with his Disney Plus push. The Hollywood Reporter article announcing that news features an image of Pearl Mutter vanishing into ash in much the same way that the characters at the end of Infinity War do because Kevin Feige is inevitable. (laughs) So that is the history of Phase 2 in the MCU.
0: So how do we want to start this discussion?
1: Well, I think it's worth talking at the start just how different this is from all of the other MCU movies before it.
2: The beginning of the movie almost tricks you into thinking it's going to be another serious movie. Sure, it starts with I'm Not In Love by 10cc, but then when Come and Get Your Love starts playing, you're like, oh, this is the movie. This is the movie that we're going to be having. It's going to be a sci-fi comedy with a bit of a excited... Golden Retriever-esque energy to it?
0: This was a pretty big swing. Not only were they moving into the realms of straight-up spaceships and aliens-type science fiction that they were kind of uh, skirting around the outskirts of, but this is also a group of characters that people didn't care about. Uh, Broadly speaking, obviously you had people who were fans of the Guardians of the Galaxy, but there was no one who was going to go out and say, I desperately need a movie for this. These were untested characters. So untested, in fact, that they're fundamentally different.
1: It didn't make financial sense, really, for anyone to greenlight a $170 million film adaptation for it. Like, it was a huge risk.
0: Yeah, for sure. And for me, yeah, it's a big swing with, like, a talking raccoon and a big tree man, but it, the biggest swing is the straight sci-fi. Hmm. taking place here. The fact that it's almost completely disconnected from all our Earth characters, it's got no Avengers in it, full stop, and the only connective tissue is Thanos. I
1: think that's by design. I think that they wanted to silo it, so if they had to, if this bombed, they could slice it out of the ongoing storyline very easily. You think about what they would have had to do if Guardians had not been successful... All you would really have had to do with the Infinity War thing is to have Thanos turn up with both of the stones that were still in space before he gets to Earth.
2: Yeah, and I just think it's so interesting that they gave seemingly so much freedom to James Gunn. There's a lot of things that are very much his style. These characters who have dark backstories but are generally arseholes to people. These like the Jackson Pollock joke didn't in the earlier years of Marvel wouldn't think that would get through.
1: I can imagine a world in which Robert Downey Jr. improvs a line like that, but yeah, it would yeah, have been well, yeah, it I would have see really him stood improving
2: out that line, but that would probably get cut. And I mean, the soundtrack as well is a new thing for Marvel. Well, not really because of the ACDC in Iron Man Two.
1: It's it's the first time it's like integrated into the scenes in such a yeah. dramatic way. It's not just background music for a scene. It's like, it's basically the score for the dramatic moments.
2: Yeah. And in that sense, it's a very interesting tone. And it's a tone that Gunn has stuck with this idea of getting a bunch of mixes together and doing that kind of thing.
1: Do you think that the holiday special will just be all Christmas music?
2: God, I hope so. I hope that it's lesser-known, just Christmas novelty songs, not necessarily Christmas carols.
1: But he roots the music into the... Like, this is the thing. We've been talking about all of the style and everything, and certainly you're talking about the space stuff. I mean, the the whole presentation of space is an an amalgamation of Star Wars, Star Trek, and Mass Effect all rolled into yeah. one. Hmm. But all of these, these style choices are in service of character and narrative. Like, they're not just disposable. All of the music is so instructive as to who Peter Quill is and to where he came from, that he's got this cassette tape that his dead mother gave him, that the first time we see him as an adult, he is dancing to come and get your love. Like, that shows us instantaneously who that guy is. Like, we understand him the second that we see the Chris Pratt adult version of him because of how... Gun is using the music and he uses it as an instructive thing for character work, for plot work throughout all of these stylistic flourishes, even stuff like, you know, the color, the, the explosions of color and, and different things are used in particular ways that you, you start off with a very sort of, you know, bright, clean colors when you're in the civilized areas and it's all, it all looks very Star Trek. It all looks very much like the Citadel on Mass Effect. And by the time you get to nowhere, it's all, like, neon and shadows and scuff marks and, and things, and it all starts to look a bit like a red light district. It's got that kind of, kind like... Of
0: firefly.
1: Yeah. Or, or, or kind of like, you know, you're in a seedy part of town, and, and the quality of the colour changes, but he's always using the style in that way.
3: Mm.
0: One of the elements I really do like about Peter is that he's li- been living in space the majority of his life. So his understanding of Earth culture stalls yeah. the moment he leaves. And the way he says to that god, those songs belong to me, that may as well be true. Because hmm. he's not going back. Like He's the only person in outer space with those. Yeah. And he has a sense of ownership off of the awesome mixes, because he gets that in the sec- the second mix at the end of the movie as well because his mum gave them to him. He is an incredibly sentimental person, and in a way that can be both a real boon to his character, but also plays to his character flaws.
1: Is he necessarily sentimental overall, or is it is it that it's literally the only thing he has? Like, all he has are those headphones and that cassette tape because he's he's grown up like it was that and the clothes that he was wearing that he took with him from earth and he's an adult person now so he can't wear the clothes anymore like literally that's all he has of earth of his mother this is the thing is that he's made the choice not to go back to earth yeah because it i mean he's got his own spaceship by the start of the movie he's operating on his own he could have just gone back to earth if he wanted to but there's there's nothing for him there. He left it behind. It's too painful to go back. It's why he hasn't opened the present from his mother.
0: Well, it's it's also why at the end of Endgame, he can't wait to leave. He has no interest staying on Earth because that's where he lost his mother.
1: I've got to say, give your granddad a call, mate. Like
0: I know, yeah, he can, has family. Give him a chance.
1: What an awful day for that poor old man. Like, his daughter dies in front of him.
0: In one of the worst possible ways. Yeah,
1: and then, in f- like, five minutes later, he finds that his grandson has disappeared and is never, ever found. Ever.
2: Yeah. Like, very much in his eyes, he'd be like, oh, great, my, my grandson has been kidnapped.
1: Or ran away. Like, you'd think, you know, after a certain point, well, he's dead too.
2: Mm.
0: Well, like, Peter Quill sp- takes enough time on Earth to pick up a goddamn zoon.
1: Well, no, he doesn't. Well, Craglin gives it to him. Craglin gives it to him in Guardians 2.
0: God, even then,
1: like... There was apparently going to be an extra beat at the end in the montage with the Ain't No Mountain High Enough song, which was going to be Grandpa Quill looking into space, sitting by himself. And on the one hand, I can see why you cut it, because it's really depressing. But on the other hand, I think that's a really sort of tragic thing that should have been acknowledged, and it would have been a really effective moment. Mm. I like that actor too, by the way, Greg Henry.
0: Really doing a good job, you just get shortchanged. Well, Peter is one of those characters who is fundamentally different in the comic. Everything you can see in the modern comics of Peter Quill, that's because of James Gunn. That's because of what they did in this movie. The understandings about Star-Lord in the Guardians of the Galaxy game, that's fundamentally based on this movie. This is one of the movies where they... All of the MCU movies have influenced their comics characters in pretty significant ways. None have so been entirely transformative as Guardians of the Galaxy. We only get Tony Stark as a Guardian of the Galaxy because of this movie. We only get shit like the Cosmic Ghost Rider being a Guardian of the Galaxy because of this. Cosmic Ghost Rider being a version of... Frank Castle, the Punisher, who becomes a spirit of vengeance and eventually a herald of Galactus. This is also the movie that is responsible for the absolute shit ton of Chris Pratton things?
1: Well, I'm not sure. he He had already gotten the Jurassic World role before this movie came out. But you're right, it is the start of his meteoric ascendance. His, um, Well, he had actually been on the up-and-up. People forget that he had done the physical transformation before. No, I know. He had had been in Zero Dark Thirty, and this was sort of the next step of that. I mean, he was a breakout character on Parks and Recreation, but you're right that this is sort of the first step on his road to voicing Mario and Garfield.
2: (laughs) I can't believe he's doing... James Gunn is
0: directly responsible for Chris Pratt as Mario, and I hope he is sorry.
2: I can't. I just Can we just sit in this moment for a second of he's voicing both Mario, you know, it's-a-me, Mario, and Garfield, I don't like Mondays, the cat.
1: Oh, the whole cast is pretty cursed.
2: <laughs> All I'm just imagining Chris Pratt's Mario sounding like is just, it's me, Mario. <laughs> it's, it's just gonna sound like him.
0: It's either going to be a nothing voice or too much. There is no middle ground for Mario.
1: Did you know that Samuel L. Jackson is in that Garfield movie? He's voicing Garfield's father.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Is it like a CGI Lion King kind of deal or is it animated?
1: Uh, animation according to IMDb.
2: I
0: don't know. I like Star Lord as a character, but I have a distance from Chris Pratt. I don't know why. Mm. there's an element to the performance that I can't quite latch onto.
1: I like him a lot in Guardians, his other stuff, Parks and Recreation notwithstanding, he starts to lose me. Yeah. Um, I think he's out of his depth in the Jurassic World movies.
2: It's because his character in the Jurassic World movies isn't a character, he's, he's an action figure.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's at his best when he's playing these sort of goofy, energetic characters. This, the Lego movie, you know, those sorts of things.
0: I like him in the Lego movie. Yeah,
1: it's when he starts to play serious that things start to get a bit shaky.
2: Mm. Yeah, like the Tomorrow War.
0: His like weird scowly face that he does. I never, I can never take that truly seriously. Talking about the rest of the cast, Batista, Dave Batista.
1: Yeah, he's like he's the great breakout of this, really. Yeah, personally. who
0: anticipated that?
1: Well, surely the people who had seen him in the Scorpion King three, Battle for <laughs> Redemption.
2: Really moving up in the world. Lawson, you're being mean. But since this movie, I've been watching Batista go from strength to strength, not only as a person getting more interesting roles, but as an actor, he's just gotten better and better. Mm. And it was in, I believe, one of the prologue things for Blade Runner 2049 that I watched, and I was like, holy shit, Batista's an actor.
1: Yeah, he, he did the prologue thing, and he's also in, like, the first five minutes of that, and you're right that that is the role where people sort of sat up and like, oh, okay, this isn't just, like...
0: This isn't a fluke.
1: Yeah, I feel like that, that there was this almost perception of that he was good in Guardians because James Gunn was sort of pointing him and letting him go. Like, yeah. he, that was pointing him and letting him do his Dave Batista thing, but in actual fact, he's got more going on under there than that, and... Yeah, now he's in Dune, he's in the new Knives Out movie. He's got range.
0: I mean, I'm just saying, it is nice that he can pick up the slack from when John Cena doesn't want to do a project.
1: I feel like you go to Dave Bautista before you go to John Cena these days. Well,
2: now! <laughs> ever since Blade Runner 2049 and Dune. I really like this his performance as Drax. They give him moments where he's doing really interesting stuff where when he's talking about the death of his wife and child and then Rocket yells at him, that's a very well-performed moment and the comedy from him is also the best comedy in the film.
1: The biggest laughs I get in this movie are from him.
2: Exactly, because he is playing the character so perfectly. My favorite line from him is the, nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it.
1: And we're talking about the humour too, but, like, again, this is... You just brought it up. It's an example of character work. The humour is born from character. It's not, you know, goofy shit looking for the next gag with nothing to underline it. It's always born from character. I mean, you mentioned that line. That's an obvious one that tells us a lot about Drax. But the one that I that makes the biggest laugh I get in the movie is the one where he's like talking about how he's really connected with the rest of the team and how they're friends now. And he says,
3: I want you all to know that I'm grateful for your acceptance after my blunders. It is pleasing to once again have friends. You quill are my friend. Thanks. This dumb tree. He is
2: my friend. Hmm. In this green horror
3: Oh, you must stop!
2: And then when he shoots Nebula and he's like, no one talks about my friends like that.
0: It's, it's like in the uh, sequel when you get him saying, you are horrendous to look at, to Mantis, but you have an inner beauty.
1: Well, you talk about the sequel, like that's Gunn definitely, I mean, this movie, he's figuring it out, right? Guy like Gunn is learning, he's establishing the team, he's learning what works and what doesn't. But in the second movie, my favorite scene of the second movie is that scene where he's sitting with Mantis, not only because of that, that comedy, but then that Mantis, being an empath, touches Drax and feels his emotions and is, like, overwhelmingly sad.
2: Yeah, there's, like, so much. And it's 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 also, like, a brilliantly acted moment for not just Pom Clemente, but for Dave Bautista as well, because hmm. it's this moment of, like, you see behind his eyes that all of that pain, all of that sadness, that anguish, is all in Drax.
0: Like, when she starts, like, sort of expressing his inner feelings, he kind of looks at her and just, with a look of going, yeah, yeah, that, that that's what it is. And Drax is kind of like the secret weapon to these movies. So much so as they really, really try to emphasize his funny side in Infinity War. But what I like here just broadly speaking with the movie, is how tactile it feels. There's a great deal of like physical location, there's a great deal of physical costume. One of my favorite elements that they changed about Star-Lord is his whole wardrobe. I love the helmet, and the whole jacket and long coat thing. That's
2: really, really cool. It gives him a sort of space cowboy kind of vibe. It gives him that sort of Firefly-esque, he's the captain of a ship,
0: that gives him a real Mal Reynolds look.
2: Yeah, a Mal Reynolds look. And they thought they would sneak it past me, but the ship being called the Milano is also very fun.
1: Yeah. Well, so much of Peter's aesthetic is taken from 80s cool. Yeah. You know, the music that he listens to, the way that he dresses, the references that he makes. Like you said, John, his relationship with Earth stops at the moment of his abduction, and so he's sort of trapped in that version of things, then. You you brought up that sort of tactileness nature Harley. The world building here is fantastic as well. Oh yeah. Sure. The fact that they established this as a as a proper lived in universe with a, a history and you you're walking through those scenes in the the early scenes. I forget what it's called. The place where Quill tries to sell the Xandar.
2: Xandar. Xandar, yeah.
1: Where you just see there's all of these different types of aliens and different yeah. kinds of people. And, and that story. guy
2: hearing about Ronan is like I want no part of this.
1: But there's like that stuff. There's the history between the Cree and the Nova. There's all of the different planets and places and things. And I mean that's a it's always a hard thing for genre movies. And it's always something that I'm paying close attention to because I really don't like it in fantasy movies and science fiction movies where they promise a big world and they deliver a corner. Yeah. Yeah. Where they say, Oh, you know, it's this gigantic thing, but like it's one of my criticisms of some of. It's why I prefer the world building of the prequel trilogy of Star Wars over the, the original trilogy, because and yes, because of the technology of the time, but because that original trilogy is like it's Tatooine and a couple of planets where no one lives, and that's all we ever see.
0: It's a lo- and it's a lot of the, a lot of just like normal human being people.
1: Yeah. That's the great thing about the Mos Eisley Cantina thing. You you get so much of that. It's why it's such a memorable scene. But like, that's why I love all the Coruscant stuff and the Clone Wars stuff and all the different planets and things. Is because it gives it the feel of this connected galactic community. And that's the great thing that other stuff like like the Star Wars prequel trilogy, like um, like Star Trek, like. Uh, Game of Thrones or Mass Effect or Lord of the Rings that they do in creating the, the fictional worlds that they're creating is that they make it feel like there's something at every corner, that the, the world doesn't just stop once you reach the edge of frame, that, it, that it's not just a movie set, it continues beyond the reach of the camera, and that's something that Guardians achieves here.
2: Exactly. And you get that all of these characters have history with other people. Obviously, you've got Quill's relationship with the Ravagers and Yondu and their whole deal which we get exploration of more in the sequel but we also get the fact that Gamora is this known entity that as a daughter of Thanos as part of the Black Order people know her history they know her history with Ronin and they hate her for it.
0: I love the groundwork they do with the Kree
2: here. Yeah it, it's a lot of stuff that gets fulfilled in Captain Marvel.
0: Because, like, knowing what the Kree social structure is with, like, Supreme Intelligence, all of that sort of thing, the way that they're subjugating the Skrulls, really makes the Kree seem like massive dicks, honestly. And the fact they're doing nothing about Ronin tells you a lot about the Kree Empire itself, anyway.
2: Tells you that something happened in between... Captain Marvel going back to the homeworld and dealing with the Supreme Intelligence and Ronan, the Accuser, leaving the Kree homeworld and the Kree government and becoming a
1: rogue Ronin agent. Because Ronan
0: is in Captain Marvel as yeah. well. Well,
1: they say that Ronan is not on board with the peace treaty. He sees it as appeasement. Um, he's, more, he's a conqueror, not a negotiator. He's an he's accuser. An accuser. This is the area that I want to see a lot more exploration in is you can, you can do a whole wing of the MCU in this space, you know, sort of arena. I mean, space
2: politics. Yeah.
1: I want, I want the Disney plus series that's just new characters set on nowhere, something like that. You know, you could do a whole bunch of things. I think that they're probably a little worried about the spheres of Star Wars and Marvel crossing over and competing with each other. I think that's probably why. They're not going too far in that direction, at least as of yet, but it's it's such an interesting corner of yeah, the MCU Im- to explore. Yeah.
2: I mean, can you imagine getting a West Wing-style thing set on Xandar with Glenn Close?
1: Oh, we can talk about that next week, but I want this sort of dramatic political drama set in the five years between Infinity War and Endgame.
2: Okay, we, we talked a little bit about Gamora. Zoe Saldana is doing a lot of good
1: work here, too. She is. And so is Karen Gillan as Nebula. Gamora is the sort of link between the Guardians and the rest of the MCU. She is the reason that, I mean, if the Guardian, if she was not the daughter of Thanos, if they hadn't established that in this movie, it would have been a real reach to get them into the ongoing Infinity War saga when it finally arrived. But that's the purpose that she serves. And it's also contextual to the rest of the characters as well. I mean, obviously there's the Drax element that he's after Ronan and Thanos because they killed his wife and child. And there's the ongoing thing that is in these Guardians movies, not only of broken people but of strained relationships with parents and children or parental problems. The Quill's obviously got the dead mother and the absent father, that Gamora's got Thanos as a father. You've got Rocket who is, if he has a father, if you want to look at it that way, it's the scientists that made him. Obviously, there's Drax having lost a child.
0: There's there's also... Uh, Yondu. Yondu being, essentially, uh, to put it the way that Michael Ruger does in number two, he may be your father, but he was never your daddy. But there's also the sibling relationship between Gamora and Nebula, as well as, on rewatch, retroactively, their relationship with the rest of the Black Order. We also get... On the point about Rocket, actually, uh, at a uh, Comic Con just this year, uh, they introduced the High alu- the High Evolutionary. Mm. He was there in full costume.
1: Okay, you're going to have to explain that. The for High me.
0: Evolutionary is the guy responsible for Rocket
1: Raccoon. Okay, so is he in the third one? He will be, yes. And because James getting... Gunn has said that the third one is sort of Rocket's movie.
0: Um, the High Evolutionary has a lot to do with like Adam
2: Warlock as well. Yeah, and Cosmo the space dog. And Cosmo the Space Dog.
1: Who is in this movie, is canon in the MCU.
2: And is being voiced by Maria Bakalova.
1: Is Cosmo the Space Dog in the in the Marvel comics? Yes. Is he... Yeah, I, I know he's in the Marvel comics, but is he... In the Marvel comics, is he the actual Cosmo the Space Dog from, like, First Dog in Space? Yep. Like, he's not just another dog with the same name. He's, like, no, the proper... No. Okay, right. Good. Acurate,
2: s- space dog. dog.
0: In the sequel, we also get Howard the Duck. We'll get him in this no, as well. How duck at the end of this He's one? He's there. I love like uh, the collector's whole place. You see a dark elf just in a in a box. You see a Chituri corpse or something.
1: You see the alien parasite from Slither.
0: Yeah, I I love that these characters are just out there. Yeah, like Tredimir Tavan is just out
2: there. Yeah,
0: you get the ravages that are just out there. You get
2: John C Reilly just. Out there. <laughs> Howard the Duck is a known entity within the MCU.
1: He turns up at the big battle at the end of Endgame.
2: Like, I wanted a small segment of that fight.
1: He's literally on screen for a fraction of a second, but he turns up with the Ravagers. Yeah. I w- want to move on to Groot and Rocket in a minute, but you brought up John C. Riley. He is the weakest part of this movie for me in terms of casting. I don't buy him as an alien cop. It's too John C. Riley. Yeah. Um,.
0: I just think it's just like a straight-up waste of John C. Riley, honestly.
1: It's kind of a waste of, of Glenn Close as well. I mean, she doesn't get very much to do. She literally just was very upfront about it that she did it for the money. She did it mm. so that she could continue to do... She, she said something like, I did it so I can keep doing, you know, smaller projects that fewer people see. And I hope I'm going to have a lot of fun on Guardians, but that's why I'm doing it.
0: Good on her. Hmm. It's a job. Yeah. Let's talk about Rocket and Root.
1: Yeah, I want to know what your problem is with Bradley Cooper, Sean.
2: I, I just don't like the character.
1: So it's not necessarily the performance. You said it was the performance.
2: It's part, partly the performance, too. It feels like... Okay, so the way that I look at Guardians of the Galaxy is that there... And both it and its sequel, there is a character who is specific to different kinds of senses of humour... And Rocket Swine is just not mine. The part where he's doing the fake laugh, the taser face thing in Guardians 2, the vo- the g- general voice that he's putting on, I just don't... I don't connect to it.
1: I suppose this is where the divisions in our sense of humour become apparent as well, because I actually find him pretty funny. He's not the funniest, I mean, I think all the funniest people in the movie I think it's Drax, but um, like, I like that sarcasm, I like that cynicism, that Connects with me where it sounds like it doesn't with you.
0: Well, for me, my distance from Rocket is not so much the character; it's just the performance. It's a lot.
1: Is it a lot, or is it just because you know it's Bradley Cooper playing it?
2: No, like it's a bit grating to me, just just a bit. And it's also the character's attitude too. For me,
0: I'm fine with the character's attitude. I just think that perhaps if they pulled back on the voice a little bit. There wouldn't nearly be as...
1: I'm not getting what your problem with the voice is. Could you explain it? feels it?
2: forced. It feels forced to me.
1: Again, is, is it because you know that Bradley Cooper doesn't sound like that in real life? I mean, if you came in off the street and you'd never heard of Bradley Cooper before, would that really stand out to you? Because I feel like the voice that he's doing is a perfectly serviceable New York voice that, I mean, Joe Pesci... His natural speaking voice is just way more (laughs) full-on than that.
0: I don't don't know, it's just... It's not really something I'm logicking, you know?
2: It's... Yeah, it's just sort of like a my brain is just, like, not getting it.
0: When I hear the voice, I just push back against it. I can't really logic my way through it, Lawson. That's not exactly how my mind works all the time.
2: I don't exactly have a reason.
0: But what I do like is the relationship between him and Groot. Yes. I am just really sad that we get so little with full-grown Groot. Like, OG full-grown Groot.
1: He'll be back by the third one, though, surely.
0: No, he's still a teenager.
1: Uh, They'll get there at some point.
0: I know, I'm just saying, because Groot, as we come to know him in this movie, is not the same Groot that exists.
1: Let me tell you, they need to do a far better job of explaining that in the movies themselves, because you would not know it To just if you just watch the movies, no,
0: like we're we're meant to assume that Groot is just growing back, but no, that's an offspring.
2: It he's Groot, but he's growing up with a different set of family members than he did. Yeah, he doesn't
1: have the memories of OG Groot.
2: It fundamentally
0: may as well just be an offspring.
1: Yeah. Personally, my favourite iteration of Groot is, at least so far, I mean, we haven't seen much of Team Groot, but I very much enjoy bloodthirsty baby Groot in um, Toddler Groot in, in Guardians 2. I love how when they're taken captive by the Ravagers in Guardians 2 where they, like, pour alcohol on him and make him, like, fight, and then there's that line of, like, what should we do? Should we kill him? And the boss is like, no, he's too adorable to kill.
0: <laughs> I also like when they're... Uh, Rocket is planning his escape Baby Groot just comes back with a toe Just a severed human toe
1: That's the bit of Groot I find funny um, And I find it funnier when he's little As opposed to when he's big Is that he is kind of Kind of an idiot Like he's not very bright
0: OG Groot is just a sweet simple Kind of oaf
1: OG Groot is my least favourite member of the Guardians In this first one Because he is so low energy I don't know I'm just I'm finding a lot more to like in the people around him than in him specifically. Whereas once you get into the second one, he's like dancing to Mr. Blue Sky at the start and just straight up murdering people to come a little bit closer. (laughs) They knew
0: they had something special with baby Groot, hmm. ultimately. That's why we're getting I am Groot.
2: There's two specific moments in this movie that makes me fall in love with this version of Groot and it's the two moments where tyler bates's score really nails it it is when Groot produces the spores when they're on the dark aster and the music there called Groot it's a track called Groot spores gorgeous gorgeous piece of music and then the Groot cocoon scene
3: no Groot you can't you'll die Why are you doing this? Why?
2: We are Groot. Those two moments are like, that is, that is Groot. That is who he is.
1: I don't like the we are Groot line at all. I think it's too on the nose for me. I've got no problem with the rest of the scene. Just have him say, I am Groot again. Like, the we are Groot thing is just, like, two on the nose.
0: You have to let it carry through in Vin Diesel's performance, and he carries a lot in his performance. It's really good that he was given an actual script so he can actually understand the context that has to be performed, because that's half of the work.
1: But that, like, again, you can, you can express that sentiment through... The repeated yeah. line, rather than yeah. changing the rules just for that one line specifically, because oh, when no, he says I "fully agree," yeah, when he says "we are Groot," it's like, "Oh right, this is you're manipulating me. You're pressing buttons. This is your plan." <laughs> Whereas if he were to just like look at them and say, like, you know, with a sad smile, really solemnly, "I am Groot," I uh, like that. That's more effective to me.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I I'm all, I'm in one hundred percent agreement. But like. What a weird day of
3: work for Vin Diesel.
1: Mm.
0: Like, at some point, like, during my day-to-day at work, there are phrases I repeat when talking to customers. At some point, it all becomes meaningless.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah.
0: So, it's an incredible act of mental endurance on Vin Diesel's part that it could work.
1: Oh, come on, he was in there for like a day. Like, let's not pretend that this is some sort of, like, gymnastic feat of acting, he...
0: I'm just saying, like, even over the course of, like, an hour, it'd get old. But it's still good work.
1: And it is, like, like the peak. The Like, pr- frankly, taking it to a ridiculous extreme in Marvel's insistence on getting big-name actors. Like, <laughs> yeah. literally anyone could have played that. Like, l- truly, literally any actor in all of existence.
0: James Gunn could have played that.
1: But to get Vin Diesel and to have him do, do it fresh... For every line. I mean that's a, there's a certain like mad commitment to that that uh yeah. in that that I have to give props to. Let I wanna talk about the villains. Ronan. Ronan and Thanos. I'm not that taken with Ronan, um just because he is a little too like He's
2: very samey. I know, but I think Lee Pace is having a lot of fun with it.
1: <sighs> Lee Pace is playing that kind of austere character, like but he does it so much better in the Hobbit movies. Hmm. That sort of coldness and ruthlessness. Yeah, it's just kind of samey. We we don't get enough context for him.
0: Well, this was the period when our villains were weakest, ultimately. Outside of Ultron. But Ultron was mainly force of uh, just sheer charm, coming from James Spader.
1: Ronin is just Malekith in space.
2: (laughs) Which is funny, because Malekith is also an alien. I just like that Ronin is- we get enough- backstory for him, that you can see where he is coming from? No, you don't. What are you talking about? He's a space racist. That's it. No, that's not what I mean. I, not that I can empathize or sympathize, but I can see the dots with the history all of what is, what is happening. I can see the history there. Maybe
1: you can because of your familiarity with the comics. But John has
0: he... no familiarity, familiarity Well, I'm with
1: not seeing what you're getting from this movie then, because he just rocks up to be evil, he hates the Nova, and so he's going to kill a bunch of people. That's his whole motivation.
0: I think John is talking of uh, from having Captain Marvelous context as well,
1: but I don't see any context in that either. Not, not, not to his behaviour in this.
2: They state in the movie that there had been a lot of war between the Zandarians, the Nova Corps, and the Kree, and that the Kree were in a losing position that is why the thing was being done and you get that information about him that he's doing this because he needs and wants revenge creed tradition demands it and he is a traditionalist i
1: agree with you that would be pretty interesting if it were in the movie but just saying it doesn't to me mean a good execution of it and a good character when it has when when we don't explore that you know
2: Sure, I'm just extrapolating from the information given.
0: For me, I would have liked him to be more, but the fact he's this austere, really, really serious person clashes with the Guardians themselves.
2: Yeah, his greatest moment is when Star-Lord starts dancing in front of him and he's like, "What what are you doing?
0: For me, it's almost like, this is my
2: big moment, man. What the hell are you doing? It's like, I've practiced this in front of the mirror. I've
1: got to say, I'm liking this discussion, because we so rarely disagree on anything. I enjoy it when we do... Uh, Thanos. We should talk about Thanos, yeah. And watching it through, watching the whole thing through, uh, like I did, having now completed the MCU and watched all... Well, not watched all the movies over again, but all the movies up until Far From Home, because the most recent ones haven't been added to the list yet, under the rules of the list. But it really exposes watching them all in sequence... How much of the build-up to Thanos was marketing and not in the movies themselves? Mm. Yeah. Thanos has a single shot in which he does not speak in the Avengers. He has, what, two, three scenes in this? And Mm. then he has a single line of dialogue in the post-credits of Age of Ultron. And that is
2: it. It's a lot of word of mouth coming from comic fans who are like, Thanos is a big deal in the comics, so get ready. It's the same thing as when Game of Thrones started. All of the fans of the books were like, oh, the moment someone starts talking about weddings, you gotta... Well, sure, but
1: in the Game Game of Thrones thing, they actually had the build-up to it, and when it arrived, it felt natural. Like, the importance of that moment was dictated by the narrative, not by the press surrounding the series. And this is what I think I was talking about earlier when I said that you start to see the gaps in the track that they've laid for Mm -hmm. themselves. Thanos needed to turn up more. He needed to turn up in the background of a few more movies to really get... He needed to be more of a Darth Sidious figure throughout all of Phase 2, appearing in a hologram, appearing in a scene or two, not necessarily in every movie, but like there was the constant feeling that he was there and he was coming, he was getting ready. Because as it is, and we can talk about this next week, when he rocks up in Infinity War, I'm kind of confused why he's waited this long.
0: Mm. Uh, for me, what gets to me about Thanos as the character progresses through the franchise is he only really appears in the way that we know him now in Infinity War. Mm.
1: They don't even say what his um, what his motivations are until Infinity War.
0: Mm. That's the thing to me, ultimately. While nothing in Infinity War and Endgame contradict what was before, you also know it wasn't the plan. Yeah, Like, you know that when Josh Brolin is playing Thanos in Guardians of the Galaxy, that's not part of the work he's doing. That that's not part of his conception of the character.
1: For such a big villain, the only characters that interact with him for any... Ex- the only heroes that have any real interaction with him is Gamora and Nebula. Mm. Because if you think about, like, Captain America meets the guy three times. Yeah. That's it. That's all of the encounter. It's like if Voldemort just was not in the movie until he was not in the series until he turned up in Deathly Hallows knocking on the school door. Hey, let me in. And that's, I think, a bit of a problem. Like like I said, I think that you can see some of the, that, the more hastily pulling together yeah. things, the less planned out stuff. And I think that's actually why Guardians is... Of, you know, for all of the talk that we had about how it's so disconnected from the rest of the MCU at this point, it's so crucial because it's the only time we ever really see him Yeah, until Infinity War in any real capacity. Outside
0: of this movie, Thanos is just some big purple dude. In here, you get at least a little bit.
1: Yeah, and even even aside from him appearing in the movie physically, it's so crucial that we understand what the perception of him is among all these alien worlds. The fact that there's Gamora, she's talking about what an awful guy he is, the Drax has this whole history that everyone knows. Like, like when they get to the the prison, like, there's just a whole bunch of people who are totally ready to take Gamora out because of that history.
0: Ronin killed a bunch of people's families, and Thanos has wiped out half the populations of planets. So there's a lot of people... With beef.
1: Yeah, exactly. We sort of get through the reaction of all of these people more than anything else, that he is sort of space Osama bin Laden. Like, he is a legendary terrorist Mm. who's killed countless people. And that, more than anything, is what gives, within the narrative, you know, separate from the press and the the years of build-up, within the narrative, it's Guardians that gives him the oomph when he turns up at the start of Infinity War. Yeah. Almost to the point that Infinity War seems to realise that. I mean, I think it's actually pretty important that they open that movie the way that they do. We'll talk about that next week. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, like, really racing to convince us to take this guy seriously, that opening Mm. sequence. Successfully. But, like, you you do see the strain.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And it is the Thanos vein of things that really shows how ramshackled the first two phases were. We're not getting anything as sort of hodgepodge together with Kang and everything we're going to be learning about him.
1: Well, even Phase 3, I mean, like I said, I mean, all of the stuff I was talking about in the production history was sourced from, you know, behind-the-scenes reports, you know, things in Variety, in The Hollywood Reporter. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'll be so interested to read the big history of the MCU nonfiction book that will inevitably get written when people retire and don't have to maintain, you know, bridges anymore. They can burn them if they want Um, because – I think it will be interesting to see if as it certainly appears from the information we currently have that Feige taking creative control uh, at that point resulted in that paradigm shift in phase 3. Oh, I
0: I absolutely think that is the case because he runs a much tighter ship phase 3 onwards.
1: Yeah, because really I was it sort of stood out to me like Marvel movies have become such this big thing but I only ever i only started routinely loving them in phase three. Mm. Like there were there were movies I I loved the Avengers, I loved the first Iron Man, I loved Guardians and Winter Soldier. But they they were pretty hit or miss. They they were never bad movies. They were never not entertaining. But a lot of the mid tier, the the lower to mid tier Marvel movies originate from phase one and two.
0: Oh, absolutely, fully agree.
1: And it's not until phase three where you just start getting like banger after banger of you know, yeah. S- Civil War, Doctor Strange, Guardians 2, Thor, Spider-Man, Homecoming, Black Panther, Infinity War. I don't like Ant-Man and the Wasp, but we'll, we'll have that be the exception that proves the rule. Then Captain Marvel, then Endgame, then Far From Home. It's become so much more consistent.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. What I like, again, about Guardians of the Galaxy and how ta- and one of the ways that the movie feels so tactile is... The effects work is on point, And also, James Gunn knows how to direct an action scene. Yeah. Which is weird, because he hadn't done it to this scale before. So, he's got a really good handle on that. And we know that he can continue to have a handle on that in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Peacemaker, su- The Suicide Squad, you know, that sort of thing. And it is honestly surprising that the guy from Troma...
2: Has become one of the most in demand directors.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we are recording this the morning of the Warner Brothers Discovery earnings call. And one of the news things that's come out of that is that the new regime at Warner Brothers Discovery is looking to to find a, a creative architect, a, a a person, a Kevin Feige style person, and they want to come up with a 10 year plan for the, the DC movies. And I think that now that James Gunn has all but stated that. Guardians 3 is his last Guardians movie. I think it makes a lot of sense given the success of the Suicide Squad for them to be looking at him. I mean, he clearly enjoys working in the superhero space. I think that you see it in stuff like Super more than anything else like for as comedic as he tends to to be. He takes superheroes
2: very seriously.
1: He can go dark, so it's not like Oh, the Suicide Squad
2: shows how dark he can be.
1: But but you know what I mean, it's not like necessarily that if if you put him in charge, then all of a sudden the Robert Pattinson movies become laugh riots or anything. Mm. I mean, he could turn it off when he wants to. Yeah. I think that that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to find someone with a proper artistic and creative vision, and I think that, frankly, like, that would be such, like, the the announcement of that, the PR of that would be Mm. a real boon for the, frankly, disastrous state of play that is going on over there.
0: You and I differ on what we want the future to exactly look like for the DCEU, or the DC films or whatever. DC Studios, if it's going to be called that.
1: I think we might be reaching the end.
0: I think I'm pretty much done too. I'm just saying, like, you don't expect the action to be as good as it is, but it is really good stuff. It's not mind-blowing, but for a first time at taking a swing at this sort of thing, really, really successful work.
1: Um. So... There is a few entries in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. They are all from the sex and nudity section. Understandably. Rocket, who is a raccoon, is briefly shown not wearing clothes while entering his prison cell after being showered, his folded prison uniform held over his groin. Gamora wears a tight-fitting outfit. I'm I'm sorry, I need to emphasise the capitalisations in this, okay? Gamora wears a tight-fitting outfit, but NO! Female nudity. Peter is attracted to Gamora. There's no sex shown in this movie.
2: Hey, 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 hey guy? Okay.
1: And lastly, sexual references meant to be funny. <laughs> so now why don't we move on to say who our MVPs is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and, of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Leskoe.
2: Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs)
1: Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is James Gunn. Because I think it comes together in a way that few other directors could have accomplished. We've talked a lot about what a big swing this is, what a big gamble it was, how it could so easily have gone wrong. And it works because of Gunn. He understands the material, he understands the tone and he executes that tone in a way that manages to be incredibly fun, incredibly funny, but also at the core of it, be so rooted to the drama and the character and and all of the really important, you know, narrative stuff that is vital for any story to be really, you know, memorable and fundamental and meaningful. And that's why I've got to give it to him because it really is impressive I think he did something that no one really thought he could do uh, in making this movie. So I've got to give it to him. And I do think that he is one of the big influences on the MCU as a result of this movie, that that it is him basically that is the reason that we have the cosmic sort of stuff that we have now. He proved Hmm. it could be done. It's I think there's probably a decent dot connection you can draw between this and Thor Ragnarok. I think if this movie had not worked, we might not have – Gotten Marvel being as willing as they were to green light funny takes on their superheroes going forward. So I think there's a lot to thank James Gunn for with this movie. Uh in terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I'm going to say that it is the the prison escape and really the the really the prison escape up through them arriving on nowhere i think it it's really the team coming together for the first time we get a lot of good stuff i love the action sequence at the prison we get some great drax with the 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 literal mindedness of him it's a really strong sequence and it's the first time we see all these characters on screen together and we see the charisma of the cast and it's popping off and firing on all cylinders so i've got to give it to that sequence in terms of who would recast with this podcast, Patron Saints character actor John Lithgow. We, of course, made the ruling last week that it has to be a different character for each of these movies. I am going to choose Thanos. I think that he would do be really good as Thanos. I mean, he's got that sort of deep voice. He's got the sinisterness. He could do, you know, put him in the motion capture suit, have him go around, and I think that he could actually bring really great depth and and layers and history there. I think of the scene, not in this movie, but at the end of Infinity War of Thanos on the porch, and I imagine Lithgow's interpretation of that, and I think it really, really works. He's definitely got the voice for it, he's definitely got the talent for it, and uh, I think it would be a really strong spot for him.
0: Uh, So my MVP has to be James Gunn. This movie was pivotal, not only in his development as a director, and a media figure, but also pivotal to the MCU itself. Like Lawson said, we don't get the cosmic stuff without what James Gunn was able to accomplish here. We don't get them hiring Taika Waititi without James Gunn proving that Guardians of the Galaxy can work. It was a bold move, and it paid off, and it paid off because of what James Gunn was able to accomplish on the project. My favorite scene or sequence has to be the the entire final battle. Ultimately, particular points go to Groot releasing the spores with that really nice music and Drax's whole friendship thing. That's just really fun and sweet stuff. But also Groot's sacrifice is very, very moving, even though we only know him, what, hour and a half? Uh, Who I would replace with character actor John Lithgow. I'd have to say, because I'm holding off on another character to the next episode.
1: Okay. I'm going to be interested in next week because my character for next week has not been in either of the movies we've discussed so far.
0: I would have to say, I'd really like to see him as... Oh shit. Yondu. He'd have, obviously, a different energy, but we know that he can go there, you know? And we've never really seen him play a kind of a... We rarely see John go as rough-and-tumble characters, so it'd be a different energy for him to explore... And there's a paternal energy he could bring to the character in a weird way that makes him say, we were going to eat you, (laughs) play a bit different. You can't tell me you can't imagine him, like, painted all blue as Yondu. No,
1: I can imagine it. If I was casting him as a Ravager, I'd actually be sooner to cast him as Sylvester Stallone's character in the second movie.
0: Ooh. But I would want him as a Ravager. Like, some Ravager captain out there who's spent his entire life taking names and
2: kicking ass. (laughs) Okay, so for me, my MVP for this is James Gunn. He has introduced his flair to these movies and has only gone from strength to strength as a director. He does such a good job at making these unknown characters world famous. And it's basically because of him that... Future iterations of Star-Lord will always carry a Walkman with them. That's because of James Gunn. His eye and his style is so infectious that he's the one who made this movie as good as it is. For my favorite scene or sequence, it's the Groot Spores scene, once they get on the Dark Aster. That piece of music and just what that scene and sequence means to the characters. The fact that this is them all coming together, really, is moving and I think it's the moment that they truly become a family. And I just like that sequence a lot. All up to the obviously, like you said, bitch, where the guardians of the galaxy. Cause I love that whole from there to the that moment. For who I would get John Lithgow as, part of me wants him as a character who we will see a lot in these movies but there's two roles that are sort of just screaming out at me although we would have technically less of him my first idea is have him as the voice of Groot because I think he is so talented that he could really get that stuff across with the bare minimum words another part of me is screaming out saying get him as the collector Have it be less that he's this kind of, like, weird Liberace-esque Benicio Del Toro character. Have it be more that he's, like, this carnival barker showing people his freak show kind of thing.
0: Everyone, come and see The Collector's Wares.
2: Yeah, that kind of thing. I feel like that would be an interesting energy. But, barring that, maybe him as the broker? Can't really think of anyone else other than those three.
0: Uh, So now we are going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-Guardians of the Galaxy podcast or not. Uh, Lawson, why don't you vote first?
1: Um, I'm saying yes. I think this is a really good movie. It's fun. It's funny. It's exciting. It has great performances. It opens up a whole new area of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is, thinking through it at the moment at least, probably my fourth favourite MCU movie yeah probably i mean we are going to do our rankings uh next episode but that's where i'm thinking it'll be at this point I, it's a great movie it's it's a lot of fun and yeah absolutely put this on our imaginary blu-ray line and it'd sell a lot of units
0: very successful on our end. <laughs> business business uh so i would have to completely agree it's it's really really good it's high end mcu and for series that I've enjoyed pretty much every title from this is one of the ones that I've always found really really striking it's bold it's new it's fresh kind of still even now it has a level of freshness to it it holds up beautifully and yeah it's just really really good john
2: i'm going to say pro because this is such a genuinely well crafted billion dollar movie this is a blockbuster in the same way that Avengers is. It's a feel-good film, and it's fun for the whole family, I could argue. I can I can see this being a kid's favorite movie, and them loving Rocket, and them loving Groot. And it's one of those cultural touchstone moments in the MCU where it's like, this is what the vibe is going to be going on.
0: It's a real trendsetter movie.
2: This is how successful it's going to be. And if we didn't have this, we wouldn't have the Suicide Squad and we wouldn't have King Shark, and that would make me very sad.
0: So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are a pro Guardians of the Galaxy podcast. Uh, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find us at Exit Through the KD Counter. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Guardians? What do you think about Guardians of the Galaxy? Who is your favorite member of the Guardians? Where do you hope they go uh, in the future beyond James Gunn's presence as director? What do you think about Phase Two? on the whole, and do you agree with Lawson that Ant-Man is the weakest? Because, obviously, we'd like to find more people like him. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, subscribe, and share on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're commenting, uh, it depends upon your service, whether the comments are for specific episodes or for the show on the whole, so do keep that in mind. The machines in the future have cracked space travel. Interstellar flight... Close to light speed, not quite light speed just yet, but they're working on that. And they have not discovered that many alien races. Uh, Most are still uh, bacterial by nature. Uh, Time has to elapse. Life only can exist on a very small sliver. But the life that they have found that's beyond uh, single cell organisms, the multicellular ones, are upsetting to see. Uh, A lot of physical shapes that don't track to what we have here. Uh, So Lawson, what do we have next week?
1: Well, next week we will be finishing off our makeshift Marvel trilogy with an episode on Infinity War and Endgame. If we would like to follow along, Infinity War is available for streaming in Australia on Disney+. Plus. It is also available for purchase or rental on the... Google Play, Microsoft, YouTube, Telstra, Fetch, and Apple Stores, as well as Purchase Only on the Amazon Store. Endgame is also available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. It is available for rental on the Google Play, YouTube, Telstra, Fetch, and Apple Store, as well as Purchase Only on the Amazon and Microsoft Stores.
0: Right, so check in with us next week, where we'll be talking about Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame as a double feature. I have been Holly Lewis,
1: I've been Lawson
2: Keeney, and I have been and I will continue to be jean Lewis.